It's a rare visit from one of Blanche's children this week when her estranged daughter Rebecca comes to town. With their communication being limited over the last four years, Blanche can only guess as to what Rebecca has to say or show her after all that time. When Rebecca the model arrives and no longer has her runway figure, Blanche is shocked. Even worse, Rebecca's reason for the visit is to show off her new man and soon-to-be husband, Jeremy. When his verbal abuse gets to be too much for the girls, Blanche feels compelled to say something, but the fear of losing her daughter has her biting her tongue. Will Jeremy get the beating he deserves? Will Rebecca discover her self-worth? Will Sophia, Blanche, and Dorothy realize what big jerks they've been? Let's find out as we cringe through the episode, Blanche's Little Girl. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. Now, we've had other episodes that seemed meaner or had a higher amount of oh boys, but boy oh boys. This episode might be the worst as far as being problematic and just flat out mean. Even in the Facebook groups, this is one of the more groaned about episodes. And I see responses that are understandable saying like, it's a very old show. Let's just let it be what it is and love it for that, which is true. We can still love the show even when they're being mean. But I feel like it's important to look at the topics from over 35 years ago and not only acknowledge the societal changes we've made, but call out the crap. That way we hopefully don't repeat it and can just make things better for everyone. Besides, correcting isn't the same as saying, I hate it. It's a mellow evening in the kitchen as a blue and white dress wearing Rose and Dorothy in navy pants and a teal-ish with pink underlay blouse are working away. Then, from the side-slash-back-slash-secret door comes a tiny cowboy in a little hat and little fringe vest over a little plaid shirt with more fringe and dark pants. It's Sophia, and she has had a horrible day. No Dorothy. Not because Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid took her seat on the bus, although I highly doubt Sophia would mind having to sit on the laps of Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Listen, I don't mean to be a sore loser, but uh, when it's done, if I'm dead, kill him. Love to. Sophia's day was a pile of manure because she got in trouble at work. Yes, they're supposed to greet customers at Pecos Pete's Chow Wagon, the restaurant Sophia has picked up a job at, but what she said was hello. Quite offensive to Pecos Pete, as she should have said howdy. That slip-up ended up costing her half a day's pay. Well, technically, Sophia was supposed to say, Howdy, partner. How's about a saddlebag of fries with that ranch house burger? Not the easiest way to say hi, but them's the rules. All of that upselling was just too hard for Sophia to remember. This is all understandable, which is why Rose is so shocked Sophia lost money over it. Well, it wasn't surprising to Sophia. Her manager, McCracken, is trying to prove his worth by being stringent with his expectations, hoping one day he'll be named supervisor. 
Besides the money issue from today's incident, he's also only allowed Sophia's friends, Mildred and Edna, 10 minutes for a bathroom break. For Dorothy, 10 minutes to run to the loo seems pretty reasonable. But Pete's has taken a liking to hiring older women, which is great, but also means they should accommodate their needs. Like how it takes Edna the entire 10 minutes of the break just to get her pantyhose down to her ankles. Ellen is here in an all-white outfit. No, not at all. We love our men. We're just not subservient to them. The men are a very important part of our little colony. <laughs> Breeding, you know. Apologies. That's Blanche bursting into the kitchen, and her smile is as white and shimmery as her sweater. She has exciting news after getting the mail. Her level of joy has Rose a little concerned. She's not interested in seeing another one of Blanche's order-by-mail sex toys, unlike Sophia, who is very much interested. Well, too bad for her. That wasn't what Blanche received. Instead, it was a postcard from her daughter, Rebecca. They haven't seen each other in over four years, and she's finally coming to Miami. This news has Blanche so elated she could cry. And then she does, which Rose gladly points out, leaving Dorothy certain Rose must have been a spy during World War II. The ladies will have two weeks to make sleeping arrangement plans before Rebecca's arrival. Blanche doesn't care about the wait. She's just happy Rebecca even wants to see her. This must mean all has been forgiven between them. Forgiven, Sophia asks. As hard as it is for Blanche to discuss, she opens up about the falling out between her and her daughter. Back when Rebecca was supposed to leave for school, she informed her mother she would rather drop out and pursue her dream of modeling. When Blanche disagreed with her choice, Rebecca told her to butt out of her life and to never talk to her again. And for four years, that was the case. The girls are awestruck to hear Rebecca was a model. Describing herself, I mean her child, Blanche goes on about her lovely hair, sparkling eyes, amazing body, then adds how they were basically twins, and not just in the looks department. They had such a good, close relationship, they were as tight as conjoined twins. It's too bad that, Sophia points out, when they were surgically separated, Blanche got stuck with both of their butts. Sophia's really preoccupied with Blanche's butt. She mentioned it in the artist episode, too. Blanche feels relief and is hopeful for the future of her and Rebecca's relationship. Sophia feels sentimental, too, appreciating the still healthy relationship she has with her favorite daughter. Turning to her child, she asks Dorothy to place a call to her sister. And now we fulfill our deepest purpose to balance the forces of dark and light. It's been two weeks, and Sophia, in a blue and teal dotted dress with a lace collar and cameo over a raspberry cardigan, continues to work against her crappy boss, McCracken. On the verge of forming a union, she's calling her co-workers, scheduling a meeting so they can discuss their demands. Speaking of, Sophia has one for Edna. She needs to bring a nice sherry to the affair, not pot like last time. No, it doesn't count that you try to use your glaucoma as the reason, even though multiple studies have shown weed lowers intraocular pressure, just as other glaucoma medicines do. Sophia is such a square, she won't even let Edna bring it in some wheat brownies. Now, a little side inside joke story. I had a student come to school one day, and he was much more mellow than he had ever been in his entire life. And everyone was asking him, like, hey, what's going on? What's the deal today? And finally he said, 
oh, nothing really. Oh, I had a really good breakfast. My mom made me some wheat brownies. And everyone was like, some what now? And he kept saying wheat brownies. And we all realized that he had gotten into his mom's weed brownies. And he had like the best day at school that he had had in actual years. So we weren't against the idea of him having those brownies for breakfast. You've got to drug the children. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Guys, everything is so stressful. The world's falling apart. The kids aren't going to have anywhere to live anyway. As a child, I definitely would have benefited from a little bit of THC. Yeah. Oh, baby. TLC and THC. The drama of Sophia's work reminds Rose, who is sitting in the chair next to her, stitching in a purple dress, reminds her of a story from St. Olaf. Not like that's anything special. According to Sophia, a speck of dust can remind Rose of a story from St. Olaf. She's one to talk, Miss Picture at 1922. With Rebecca's arrival imminent, Dorothy, in light jeans and a very sporty half-zipper red pullover, has come into the living room, informing Sophia that she's moved some of her stuff into her room as she'll be staying with her so Rebecca can have her room. Hearing she'll have to sleep with her daughter, Sophia takes a line from the men who have been told that with a, No thanks, I'll call you later. In a gray skirt and matching businesswoman's blazer over a black blouse, a nervous Blanche has entered, seeking validation for not only the look of her outfit, but if it makes her appear motherly. For Sophia it does. Why, in profile, Blanche looks like she could be having twins. I would call out the body shaming, but this is about as pleasant as it's going to get for this episode. Wanting to help her friend, Dorothy steps in to try and calm her nerves, but Blanche can't calm down. All she wants is for everything to be perfect. But she doesn't know what to say to her daughter, who is now a practical stranger. To show she's not alone in that feeling, Rose points out that even professional speaker and host of The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson, had that exact same problem last week when he interviewed F. Murray Abraham. I couldn't find the actual clip of that interview to see how awkward it was, but this comes as no surprise. Old F. was known for being a bit of a pain in the padded toilet seat after he won an Oscar, Golden Globe, and earned a BAFTA nomination for his role in Amadeus. In a more recent interview, he even owned up to it, telling a story about how, when he was younger and working in the theaters, he would make a list of all the jerk actors he didn't want to work with in the future. Little did he realize he was behaving in a way that would have earned his own name being added. But before he was a famous award-winning actor known for Homeland, Scarface, Moon Knight, Finding Forrester, and Mythic Quest, he was the guy in the ad for Listerine, where they literally promoted how gross it was. Also, if you're a true crime fan, you might recognize the narrator's voice as one Peter Thomas from the original Forensic Files. Andy, what do you think of the taste of Listerine antiseptic? Terrific, really terrific taste. You don't want me to tell them what I really think, do you? You use it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, twice a day. It kills the um, germs and give you bad breath, and it lasts for hours. Hey, that wasn't so good. Let me do it over. That was fine, Andy. Oh, I get it. Don't call us. We'll call you. Listen, mister, let me tell you what I really think. I use it, but it tastes crummy. Listerine's got the taste people hate twice a day. When the doorbell rings, Blanche nearly hyperventilates at the idea of being confronted with her bad mothering and uncomfortable conversations. So she runs away to the kitchen. She just needs five minutes added to the four years they've been apart. Then she can face Rebecca. Well, someone needs to get the door, so Sophia steps up. 
On the other side, we find Rebecca with her perfectly 80s coiffed blonde hair and a wonderfully stonewashed Canadian tuxedo over a teal sweater. She is a bigger girl, but honestly, she looks more like she's just very broad-shouldered than, like, large. With uncomfortable laughter from the audience as Rebecca makes her entrance, Sophia asks if she's Rebecca, the model. With only her back to Rebecca, Sophia turns to Dorothy and Rose. Her eyes wander, her head shakes. Then she rhetorically asks Dorothy if Rebecca had been a car cover model. This prompts an uncomfortable Dorothy to start to make an excuse for her mother being a jerk, but before she can, Rose explains that they're all surprised because Rebecca's just so fat and they weren't expecting it. You can't say that. So, as the ladies get to know Rebecca, let's do the same. Sean Sheps is so much more than the girl that got made fun of for being fat on the Golden Girls. First and foremost, she is a denim queen. Besides that, she's had a very diverse career. As an actress, she appeared in Weeds, Family Ties, The Terminator, Paper Dolls, and The Brady Bunch. She has also been a cinematographer, director, producer, and writer. Her writing has been seen on Weeds, Drop Dead Diva, and Inconceivable. Now get ready for some real fun facts. She also wrote the screenplays of Encino Man, Drumline, and Son-in-Law. That's really neat. That is, she had a hold on the early 90s. I loved Encino Man. I loved Pauly Shore. Was Son-in-Law the other one? Yeah. That was where I first fell in love with Carla Gugino. Oh, yeah. Oh, my heart skipped the beat. <laughs> I have a confession to make. I've not seen any of those movies. That's an oh boy of my own. Wow. Yeah. Well, we should. I think Son-in-Law might still be cute. I think I Encino was just, Man. Oh. I was just out of the age range. I was just a hair too young for it. For the weasel, whatever he said. (laughs) (laughs) What did he do? Do it, buddy. I'm a weasel. (laughs) 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 Loved him. I don't think my mom had a tolerance for Polly Shore to be played in the house on any level. I can I can see that being the case. Oh, Oh, your timing was perfect tonight, Rebecca. Rebecca, Yes, we're fine. No, we are not fine. Listen, I understand if you're pissed. If you want to talk about it, it's... Why did you do that? Get up. And do you know why Polly Shore is as famous as he is? Because his mother ran a comedy club. The comedy club. The comedy store. That's right. In Hollywood, California. And then you said you just watched Terminator, and you saw Sean, and she is... Yeah, she's in the Terminator for just a couple of minutes. She plays Linda Hamilton's co-worker. Uh, Sarah Connor is a diner server, and Sean is another server who alerts her to the murders of other Sarah Connors in in the area and says this... You're dead, honey. And that's your Terminator report from 1984. (laughs) Another one I haven't seen. Ah! It still is really good and holds up. I love it so much. Good. I'll I'll watch it someday. After a polite introduction, Rose asks what brought Rebecca to Miami, and the real oh boys begin when Sophia answers for her by saying she would guess it was a small barge. 
Don't worry, I won't be calling out all of the oh boys of rude, pathetic, body-shaming jokes. There are just too many to keep up with. Trying to laugh it off, Rebecca ignores her, while Dorothy tries to get rid of her by sending her to the kitchen to fetch Blanche. But before she can, a much calmer Blanche has come in and immediately hugs Rebecca. Pulling away, she wants to take her all in, Sophia remarking on how long that will take. But Blanche doesn't have time to talk about Rebecca's weight right now. She just wants to be with the daughter she's missed. Well, that's over. She now called her enormous. Wanting to hear all about her modeling days in Paris, Blanche starts to bombard her with questions, Sophia adding her own. Where did Rebecca find pants so big? As Blanche tries to shush Sophia's unbelievably rude behavior, Rebecca stops Blanche. She doesn't have to manage Sophia. She's aware she's bigger, but she has a sense of humor about it. More importantly, she wants to make sure her mom is okay with her weight gain. Blanche doesn't care about that. She's just happy to have her daughter back. So, apparently there's been more bedroom shuffling than I first thought. I guess it's Blanche who will be sleeping in Sophia's bed, Sophia will be with Dorothy, and Rebecca will be in Blanche's. Which makes sense to Sophia, because she knows that that bed will hold Rebecca's huge weight since she knows it has the capacity to support Blanche and two Venezuelan soccer players at the same time. And they probably weren't lying still. I like, too, that uh, just a couple weeks ago, Rose was immoral for moving in with a guy she was dating. But everyone knows Blanche had threesomes with <laughs> with these soccer players. And they're like, yeah, that's, it was a Tuesday. What do you expect? But she's a widow. Oh, of course. Which makes a difference. You and can do what you wish. And staying with a man is different than staying with a man. It's unclear if Rebecca is just getting a tour of the house, now decorated post-George, her father passing away, and post the girls moving in, or maybe Blanche and George bought it right after she graduated, and now she's been in Paris, having never seen it. Either way, she loves it. Now Blanche does want to focus on Rebecca's weight, and not because she's concerned that she's been depressed or had an illness or just has overall concerns about her health. Nope, just the beauty stuff. You know, like asking her what she's been doing since she clearly can't be a model. Be it that she's a mother or from the South, I can't help but to hear the women in my family when Blanche winks sweetly as she tells her daughter she'll be putting her on a diet. Except there was a really important question Blanche forgot to ask. That is, if Rebecca was happy, which she is. And that's why she doesn't want her mother's dieting advice or assistance. But Blanche can't possibly fathom how someone could be overweight and happy. Why, she has been known to fall into a deep depressive state over a pound on the scale. So her experience must surely translate to her daughter. Therefore, Rebecca must be absolutely miserable. Which she is. But only in regards to her mother being all up in her business, making her feel inadequate. The four years apart have been good for Becky. She's found her voice. So as soon as Blanche starts with her judgmental garbage, Rebecca points it out, holding her boundaries. Giving examples, she reminds her mother that she always made her feel like she had to be the best at everything. If you're going to be popular, be the most popular. If you're going to be smart, be the smartest. Pretty, be a model. Maybe that was true, but Blanche points out she didn't mean that if she was going to gain weight, she needed to be the fattest. Unflinching, Rebecca sets another boundary. Be kind to me. Love me for who I am. Don't try to control my life. 
And if you can't meet those expectations, I'll just be out of your life again. Good for you, Rebecca. Respecting her daughter's wishes, Blanche promises to love her for who she is, every pound, followed by her asking how many pounds that would be. Beauty standards are so ingrained in her, she can't think about anything else. Sophia has had her meeting with McCracken, and she's back home, finding Rose in a teal and blue dress standing at the stove, and Dorothy in her East Indian-inspired tunic putting a plate together, working in the kitchen. Curious how it went, Sophia tells Rose it was crappy because McCracken wouldn't even humor the idea of meeting their demands. Without any compromises being made, Sophia has decided to take the next step. She and every employee at the chow wagon who is over 70 will be picketing the next day. The strike will be just that, picketing, not the more scenery-appropriate yet culturally appropriating role-playing as Native Americans to shoot arrows at the covered wagon. Still visiting, Rebecca has changed things up a little, inviting a man named Jeremy to the house for dinner. Once again nervous about an interaction, Blanche, in a bright blue peplum-bloused skirt suit, is in the kitchen to check on the dishes everyone is making. With Rebecca still holding her boundaries and keeping her mother at a distance, they didn't get into the details of who Jeremy was. A boyfriend? A guy being brought to town just to meet Blanche? She didn't have the nerve to ask, and she didn't see a picture of him in Rebecca's stuff when she was snooping around, so she'll just have to wait and see. This backwards logic has Dorothy confused. So you have the nerve to snoop through her belongings, but not to ask a simple, what's up with this guy? Of course. It's not like Blanche just goes around digging into other people's business. The time has come. The presumed couple has arrived. So Blanche, skipping through the living room, putting her peplum to work, answers the door and is delighted to see her daughter and a young-ish man with her. It's really just the hair. He was only 39 at the time, although Rebecca was just 27. Right away, this guy proves himself to be the foreman of a red flag factory. As Blanche mentions that Jeremy seems like a lovely gentleman, Becky sort of answers her with a resounding, yes, he is. Jeremy responds by asking if Rebecca was the one being spoken to. Before Blanche can call for Sophia to bring in the melon baller, all the girls are coming in to greet with plates of meat. After introductions, Rose inquires as to how the lovebirds met. As Rebecca, in her oversized tan sweater and beige skirt, begins to tell the story of meeting at a Parisian cafe, the beige blob that is Jeremy adds literal insult by saying he couldn't find an actual table, so he just sat at Becky. This remark leaves Blanche with a face of disgust. As the audience awkwardly chuckles, Dorothy moves the night along, suggesting they head outside for some snacking and hors d'oeuvres. Ever the helpful man, Jeremy takes the plates from the ladies before handing them to Rebecca so that she can carry them out. As she follows him to the lanai, we fade out. Coming back inside, the evening is wrapping up as everyone is returning to the living room. Having thoroughly enjoyed the meal and company, Jeremy is gushing about the food and just how much fun he's had. Hoping she's caught him in a good mood, Rebecca goes fishing for compliments regarding her outfit. After she points out there's been no mention of her looks, which is rude, Jeremy agrees. He didn't want to be rude, so he didn't say anything about what, in all fairness, is a terribly boring outfit. But that doesn't mean he couldn't have thrown in a, you look beautiful as always, dear. 
Once he's done sucking his teeth in disgust, the girls tell the couple to have a seat while they finish cleaning up from dinner and brew some coffee. Coffee that a distraught Blanche would like to dump atop Jeremy. Both Rose and Dorothy agree. They've never heard such blatant verbal abuse, and they can't understand why Blanche, Rebecca's own mother, wouldn't step in to put a stop to it, protecting her child. Going even further, the whole ordeal reminds Rose of when Lars Svensson, which, given the commonality of those two Nordic names, must have been a real person, though not someone historically significant that I could find, called Eric the Red, a real, red-headed, medieval Nordic explorer who founded the first settlement in Greenland, Eric the Yellow, as in coward. And no, Dorothy, he was not then known as Eric the Orange. Blanche has good reason for not stepping in. The last time she tried to interfere with Becky's life choices, they didn't speak for four years. Dorothy doesn't see the correlation. Before, you were being bossy and demanding. This is an abusive man who needs to be stopped. That means nothing to Blanche. If Rebecca claims to be happy, then there is no point in saying anything. Besides, she is certain that before she could even have a chance to talk to her, the short-lived relationship will come to an end when she gets fed up with being bullied. Slowly bringing her own dishes into the kitchen is Sophia. She has been out on the couch but needed to get away from Jerkamy and Rebecca. They wouldn't shut up about their plans to get married and she couldn't stand to hear it. In shock, Blanche stammers over to Sophia, clarifying the horrible news she's heard. Yeah, they were talking about getting hitched. Checking in for a third time, Dorothy is like, are you sure, sure? Sure. Sophia may have bladder issues. Her eyes might be bad. Her bones are getting brittle. But what are we talking about? Oh, maybe she was confused about what she heard. Well, this tears it. Throwing her napkin on the table, Blanche beelines to the living room to confront her daughter. And sadly, it's true. Before they can gleefully announce their nuptials, Jeremy interrupts to take a moment to be traditional, asking Blanche's permission to take her daughter's hand in marriage. He then totally ruins the moment by adding, I'd take more than her hand, but I've got a bad back. Trying to put romance back into her announcement, Rebecca shares that Jeremy has proposed and she's accepted. On the verge of dry heaving, Rebecca has to get Blanche's attention to bring her back to reality. Desperate for approval, Rebecca asks if her mother is happy. Happy? Well, that's not the exact word she would use for how she's feeling right now. Unable to even acknowledge Jeremy, Blanche runs to her room, barely holding in her tears. Joe Rigobuto has been on the acting scene since 1977, his most recent project coming out just last year. As much as he's a perfectly punchable jerk as Jeremy in this episode, he was more known and liked for his role as Frank on Murphy Brown. He was also in Eight is Enough, Lou Grant, Bosom Buddies, Barney Miller, Mork and Mindy, The Love Boat, Magnum P.I., and Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he was the spokesman for a newfangled technology called Direct TV. Direct TV, totally digital television. More movies, more sports, more of what I want than ever before. All through a tiny satellite dish about the size of a small pet. Stay. How does Direct TV work? I have no idea. But it does. Now for as soon as the ad came up, I'm like, oh, I remember those where he's like, and it's all just the size of a, you're like, no bigger than a whatever. And you get all these channels. I installed one on my very own home. Did you like it? No. <laughs> it was, I mean, this is like 20 years ago when it was like really bad. Yeah. There was no on demand. The It was terrible. 
The next afternoon, Blanche, in her best baseball game casual chic, is sporting what appears to be the tiniest Dodgers cap, delicately balancing atop her voluminous hair, along with a matching blazer and not-so-matching dark brown pants and shirt. She and Jeremy, in a light yellow sweater and darker yellow windbreaker and tan pants, along with Rebecca, in a pink and white checkered blouse and light tan cardigan, are headed to a baseball game. They're off to see the Dodgers play, mostly because Jeremy is a huge fan. Not as huge as Becky, of course, he points out. Sitting at the table in her haunted mansion shirt, Dorothy can't help but interject with a, well, she's not the biggest everything. What was your first thought, Coco, when you heard her say that? What was the big thing that he is? A butthole. Oh, yeah. What'd you think? Um, Jerk, and then a-hole, and then wiener. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, in the rude way. Like a private eye, if you will. <laughs> Did you watch Murphy Brown? I loved Murphy Brown. Me too. I don't know why. Even I was as very a child, young. I loved Murphy Brown. I loved it, and I loved him on it. He was great. Was he Frank? He was so. He was Frank. Yep. And he was so charming and almost a little aloof, if I remember correctly, and just like a sweet guy. A cool dude. Yeah. And I always hated seeing him on here because he's just the worst person when he first appeared on screen i i thought oh yay yeah. i love him and then immediately it that tricks was you yep this was before murphy brown yeah when he was mean i would like to revisit murphy brown and and see why i was so into it as a kid i mean my parents were into it so i watched it and i'm curious too maybe i'm i'm sure that had a positive effect on me seeing someone like murphy brown when i was a kid like a powerful businesswoman makes a lot of sense i was also really into moonlighting <laughs> Me too. <laughs> what were we? I guess we were. I don't know. We were looking for love and and a cool job. Oh, we do. We kind of like tell stories. We are private eyes and news informers. If if anything, that's what we are. We are a moonlight brown, private eye, Murphy Moon. Murphy Moon. You'll be Murphy Moon, and I'm Moonlight Brown. Kid detectives. <laughs> That moment of rebuttal actually stops Jeremy for a second, perhaps forcing him to look inward and evaluate why he is such an ass. Oh, just kidding. He's already joking about Rebecca being mistaken for manager and classic swear master Tommy Lasorda, once she's seen wearing a baseball cap. Well, I may be wrong, but that's my god job. I'll make make the decisions here. I'll make the decisions here, okay? With a hit of the table and a scream of frustration, Dorothy has had it. You're a dirtbag! Still treating her relationship as a delicate flower, Blanche plays Dorothy's outburst off as though she's upset that she won't be getting a hat. After the group leaves, Dorothy turns to Rose in a white cardigan with blue teddy bears and flowers over a blue button-up and swears she has to say something to Jeremy about his treatment of Rebecca. Rose feels equally frustrated, but their hands are tied. It isn't their daughter, nor their relationship. They simply must stay quiet. I'm sorry, but if that was my friend's kid, I'm stepping in. I would much rather lose that friend because I was butting in than to watch that child lose their life to being with an abusive partner. Would you say something, Coco, if you're the friend on the outside? 100%. Yes, I've I've had it. (laughs) I would not tolerate even at the first, well, at the second utterance. Yeah. The first one you can kind of, did I, maybe that was an inside joke or maybe I misunderstood it or something. 
Yeah. But I, by the second one, I'm I'm Dorothy and I'm screaming and slamming the table. Yeah, I don't take kindly to things like that. Yeah. Especially because they aren't funny. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> if they're funny, you can be as mean as you want to your partner. <laughs> that's the rule. <laughs> that's the rule. <laughs> that's how I live. And that's why this works. Once again, this moment has triggered a St. Olaf memory for Rose, of which Dorothy has zero desire to hear about. With nowhere to put her anger, Dorothy aims it all at Rose. Can't she just shut up? Does Rose really have no concept of how annoying it is to hear, back in St. Olaf, back in St. Olaf, back in St. Olaf? Now that it's been pointed out, Rose is shocked, and she's eager to show she can change. Not understanding the annoyance was in the constant stories, not the actual words. She goes back to what she was saying, only this time starting it with a vague, you know, that place I can't say. Before Dorothy can strangle Rose, cowgirl Sophia is back and she's taking over the kitchen. She and her co-workers are meeting with McCracken to work out their negotiations. Sophia, in a purple and blue dress under a blue cardigan, has the support of Mildred and Edna. Mildred is uncredited and stays in the back in her gray dress and rusty orange sweater. Edna, the reefer pusher, is in an all-blue dress, all three, of course, sporting their chow wagon cowboy hats. Edna may look familiar to you as she's being played by Meg Wiley. Perhaps she got fired as a flight attendant after that whole lost bolt situation in the Nothing to Fear But Fear Itself episode. The best part? We're only halfway through our visits with Meg. We will see her again in three years. When the doorbell rings, everyone vamooses, and Sophia starts to set the scene. Arranging it so that McCracken, her big mean boss, will be alone on one side, the three of them staring him down on the other side. Sophia literally will be doing so from way up high on a bar stool. Then Dorothy opens the kitchen door and solemnly announces Mr. McCracken's arrival. Expecting an older, more intimidating presence, the audience is cracked up by the visual of the skinny, awkward teenager that is McCracken. Scott Menville might look familiar playing mean teen McCracken, as he was in Punky Brewster, The Little Rascals, Newhart, Quantum Leap, he was Wart on The Wonder Years, in Full House, Fifty First Dates, Ernest Goes to Camp, and ER. But he probably sounds more familiar. Of his nearly 300 acting credits, almost all of them are for voice work, from video games like Call of Duty, Star Trek, Lego Dimensions, and Lord of the Rings, to animated series like My Little Pony, Rugrats, Freakazoid, Celebrity Deathmatch, Avatar The Last Airbender, and basically every cartoon spinoff from movies in the 80s and 90s. He even has soundtrack credits for singing, like as Robin in Teen Titans Go. I can do it all. Really cool. When, when he first started talking, I mean, I recognized his voice from Ernest Goes to Camp, one of my favorite childhood movies. <laughs> but I thought, man, he has a rich voice. It sounds he has such a nice voice for like a teenager. Yeah. He see, I mean, he was a good actor too in the in the episode. I thought, but yeah, he's even though really it was a little, voice. it was like kind of squonky to where you couldn't tell if he was pre or post puberty. Yeah. But right in that range. But, but and yeah. just very clear. I don't know. He just sounded great. I thought really nice voice. Yeah, just like, he just did like me. That's right. Oh. And in Ernest Goes to Camp, he wore a cutoff T-shirt that uh, showed a little bare midriff. <laughs> and I An didn't... old school crop top. Oh, 80s style. Yeah. Ernest was probably a little uncomfortable around it. <laughs> 
know what I mean? <laughs> Burn. After the laughter brought on by the sight of the light denim jeans, brown belt, red pinstriped button-up, and bolo tie wearing McCracken dies down, his prepubescent voice demands that they all get down to business so he can get back to the literal business. Slipping into mother mode, Rose offers the boy some Oreos and milk. Passing on the treat, it showed Dorothy just how tough it will be to McCracken him. Before he can get to their demands, Sophia interrupts. She's been down this road before. Back in 1922, a young girl was saving up her money for a vacation on the Black Sea. She was adored by all of the men, which Edna can't believe, earning a shut-up from Sophia. When her vacation was over, three of the men begged for her to choose them, but she couldn't. So, years later, they met up again at the same resort. For her, it was referred to as the Rendezvous with Sophia. For everyone else, it was known as the Yalta Conference, a meeting of the World War II Allied leaders, and those lovers were Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and Franklin D. Roosevelt. She has such power, she helped to end World War II. McCracken is unfazed by the tale. He came to the house not to fix things, but to fire the ladies in a place they wouldn't make a scene. He's had it with their shenanigans, and he wants them out, and there's nothing they could say that will make him change his mind. That is, except for what Edna could say to Mr. McCracken, that Minnie McCracken dented his father's car by crashing his bike into it while attempting to do wheelies, not from a rogue grocery cart or a car door flinger in a parking lot. This has McCracken McShaken. He can't believe his own grandma Edna would rat him out like that. Sophia, putting on more heat, reminds him his granny has never lied. Negotiations are over, and it's now the last day of Rebecca's trip. Coming out of the hallway with her luggage is a continually brown Rebecca, this time in a skirt-sweater combo with blocks of beige. She's being followed by her still-anxious mother in a jacket, blouse, and pants, all pink with white polka dots. Getting to the door, the Devereux women are uncomfortable, both sad to say goodbye. Hoping to help in her own special way is Rose, who then begins to name all of the ways you can say goodbye in other languages— Italian, Spanish, with two examples, and an English one provided by English teacher Dorothy, who, in telling Rose to get lost, only delights her with another example. Back with the rental car, an agitated Jeremy, who could be confused for an Ellen the way he burst into the house, but isn't permitted to have that honor, is frustrated Rebecca isn't already outside since he's been parked and honking. Demanding they wrap up their au revoirs, Jeremy is clearly pissed. Still planning on marrying the cockroach, Rebecca is pleased her mother is understanding about their desire to run off and elope, leaving the perfect opportunity for Jeremy to make a Rebecca and running joke. Unable to hold everything back, Blanche sternly asks Jeremy for a little more time with her daughter. Hey, he gets that this house shares the name and pacing of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, the 1903 children's novel that tells of Rebecca living on a farm with two of her aunts, which eventually became a film starring Shirley Temple. Taking you to your Aunt Miranda's at Sunnybrook Farm. You're living with her from now on. But Uncle Harry, I want to stay here and be a success like my mother wanted me to be. Well, I've done all I can for you. I taught you all I know. Yes, I guess it just wasn't enough but they're going to miss their flight. Well, Blanche has had it. She's now the one making demands, and this time it's for Rebecca to go into the kitchen. After she kitten heels slaps her way across the room, Jeremy is left facing Dorothy and Rose, who are sporting two of my favorite looks of theirs, 
Dorothy, in her white pants and shirt with her oversized yellow sweater vest, has pursed lips and eyebrows that could kill. Rose, in her periwinkle suit with floral blouse, has a nearly smug smile. Sitting her daughter down at the table, Blanche lets it out. She's tried to hold back, but she can no longer. Instead of attacking Jeremy or even being mad at Rebecca, she places her concerns in a very valid question. Why him of all people? That's easy. Rebecca wants to get married. She wants to be a mother. She knows what she looks like, and according to her, she's only good enough for a loser like Jeremy. But Blanche fires back. It's his abuse that has you thinking you wouldn't be able to find anyone better than him, that she isn't deserving of a loving, caring, safe partner, when really, Jeremy knows what a dirtbag he is, so he has to treat her that way to keep her around. She's the only one willing to put up with him. Twisting the words of Blanche's love and protection, Rebecca only hears it as her mother invading her life once again. Given their history, she knows her mother doesn't mean Jeremy is bad. It means he, just like Rebecca, doesn't meet Blanche's standards. The whole conversation has Rebecca wishing she never reconnected with her mother. Transference much, Beck? Storming through the house and taking her luggage from Jeremy's hands, the two leave. Blanche desperately chasing her daughter, begging for them to talk things out. Disappointed in herself, Blanche damns herself to her room. Later, during the robe portion of the evening, the girls are snacking at the table, shocked that Blanche went to bed so early, something only reserved for when she has guests. It's clear Blanche is devastated about how things ended with Rebecca. Well, maybe not so clear to Rose. Still annoyed at her, Dorothy clarifies, No, it's not that. She's just bummed because the sitcom Marblehead Manor, starring Paxton Whitehead, Phil Morris, Linda Thorson, Bob Frazier, and Michael Richards, of future Seinfeld and racist fame, is only on weekly. Super weird the show only lasted eight months. Just listen to the hilarity. There's no food? No. no food that means we're gonna go hungry and we'll start to starve and everybody will go crazy the next thing you know people will be in my garden eating my flowers no you people please stay away from my flowers no really. no no don't eat the daisies without referencing that little town of hers Rose recalls how her grandmother would try to cheer her out of the blues by taking out her dentures, putting a goldfish in her mouth, and holding up a flashlight as to watch the fish swim in her cheeks. As much as they wanted to watch the fish nonstop, they could only visit her in the home, or perhaps mental health facility, from 10 to 4. As the silent stares of, what the hell is wrong with you, come from Sophia and Dorothy, Blanche comes in. She's trying to sleep, but she's just so upset. She screwed up her relationship with her daughter. Rose doesn't see it as being her fault. She was just looking out. Blanche isn't comforted by those words. Of course Rose would say something nice. So she goes to the source of realness, Sophia, who confirms that she did do the right thing. But if it's right, why does it feel so wrong, she asks. Because that's all part of the difficult gig of being a mother, Dorothy tells her. Because if it were an easy job, fathers would do it. Now that's a great joke. It's just a shame that kids are dumb, and it isn't until they grow up to be parents that they can see the things that their own parents did for them to try to give them a better life. 
reminding Dorothy of the time when she was a teen and she had to very inconveniently bring all of her dates home to get approval from her parents. Yeah, a real burden, Sophia says. You had to bring a whopping two dudes home. Wow. For Rose, the memories are of her being forced to practice the tuba for 21 hours a week for a decade. But her mom was right. It would pay off. And it has. She can inflate a tire in less than a minute. When the doorbell rings and they realize how late it is, the girls are curious to see who it could be. Going to the door, Blanche finds it's Rebecca, sans Jeremy. Making her way to the airport, Blanche's words kept replaying in her head. She soon realized that not only was her mother right about what's-his-face, but that it took a lot of bravery to risk their relationship again just to protect her. And that was the love Rebecca was looking for. She realized that the love Jeremy claimed to be showing was nothing compared to the actual love she was getting from her mama. They share an emotional hug, excited to tell the girls the great news they head for the kitchen where everyone's enjoying some cheesecake. Being as awful as Jeremy, but in that cold southern woman way, Blanche then physically redirects Rebecca to the lanai where they can just enjoy some air. The next day, it's another goodbye, only not as sad this time, as Rebecca, back in that plaid shirt, this time paired with a salmon skirt and hideously khaki brown blazer thing, is leaving once again. With happy hugs and promises to keep in touch, she leaves. Blanche, dressed as a solid gold something in a copper silk blouse and gold silk pants, closes the door. Dorothy in white pants, a pink shirt and snazzy vest, Sophia in a blue dress, I think that she stole from Edna, and Rose in a bright blue dress all slowly take a seat. With sighs and a funny little mouth made by Rose, Sophia stops them. Didn't we all agree we weren't going to talk about the kids? As I read about the list F. Murray Abraham kept in his pocket about the jerks he worked with only to become one himself, I couldn't help but think of Blanche. Here she is, getting angrier and angrier at a person who is simply being more blunt than her in his critiques and abuse. Just like F. couldn't see his own behaviors and those he was upset by, Jeremy is only reflecting what the girls are doing. Just because Jeremy is a man and is more blunt and cruel with his comments doesn't mean Blanche's or Sophia's were any more kind. Another aspect Blanche doesn't recognize is that it isn't just Rebecca's weight that has her feeling like Jeremy is her only hope— It has been her mother's lifetime of redirection, questioning, non-supportive, judgmental attitude that has been to blame, no doubt, for Rebecca's confidence issues. She could be a size four, but if her mother still looks at her in that blanchy way, she will always question her abilities, value, and worth. So to the Rebeccas of the world, no matter your size, your happiness is what matters, not the opinions of those that don't love you for you. To the Blanches and Grammys of the world, Just love who you love and keep your damn mouth shut. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get to send Barbara Thorndike to hell in Dorothy's New Friend. Yes, they're supposed to greet customers at Pecos Pete's Chow Wagon. Uh, Oh yeah, I know you're right. I'm sorry. So sorry. Wow. I'm very sorry. Wow. And it's already so difficult for me. A little, <laughs> a little too, too spicy. spicy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just a little bit. As hard as it is for Blanche to discuss, she opens out. Oh my God. Ew. Ew. As hard as I am. Sorry.
a thing. I'm sorry, I was distracted. I'm writing down the words two fart sound effects <laughs> for two butts. It's only been, nope, there's no only. Yeah, Thanks you wouldn't her. have had a tummy ache every day at school for <laughs> the entire school career you had. I'm in fourth grade. I take my Lanta every day. This is normal. Hi, my name's Alicia. It's just psychoschematic. She's fine. I'm going to put a bum goof sound effect right there. We're the couple of bo- bums that got goofed on. <laughs> we were the bums. <laughs> Our lives were the goofs. <laughs> With her perfectly 80s coiffed? No, coiffed. (laughs) Coiffed? (laughs) Oh, no, I coiffed. (laughs) (laughs) Coiffed. On the other side, we find Rebecca with her perfectly 80s coiffed. Oh, my gosh. Coiffed? Yep. Wow. I'm chaleting over here. No. (laughs) No, just like when you've read a word a million times, then you're like, what is this word? You know how you do, you failure. (laughs) Just kidding. Ah. Sean plays a co-worker of Linda Hamilton character. Oh, my God. Hello, Linda Hamilton character? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she plays... Yeah, she plays a co-worker of Linda Hamilton's character, Sonic. Sonic Carer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Here we go. (laughs) Did she survive? She does survive the movie. Yeah. Yeah. The Terminator, it's nowhere near Big Jeff's restaurant. Mm -mm. That's fun. Nowhere near it. Well, what'd she call it? Bull honky. Not the more scenery appropriate. Let. Going even further, the whore whore deal. <laughs> Oops. Blanche has a good... No. Before she could talk to her, she's sure the short-lived relationship would come to an end. Ugh. Besides, she's pretty sure that before she could even talk to her, the short... Besides, she's pretty sure that before she could even have the conversation with her, the short-lived relationship would come to an end when she gets fed up... Oh, my God. Besides, she's sure that before she could even have a chance to speak to her, the short-lived relationship will come to an end when she gets set. Oh, my God. Was that a fart? No, that was my chair. Oh, that's too bad. Are headed to a blaze ball blame. No, she's. Uh, he. Uh, you big dumb baby. Scott Minville might look familiar, playing mean teen McCracken, as he was in pimp. Pinky Pinky, leaving the perfect opportunity to Jeremy to make. She's just bummed because the sitcom, sitcom, and holding up a flashlight so they could watch the swim, swim fish in her mouth. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be 